Good morning. I will be reading from Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending the and confirming the gospel, all of you share in the God's grace with me. God can testify how long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Is mic on? You good? Okay. So, we tend to notice incongruence. We tend to notice when we have expectations for something and something else happens or some deviation from those expectations. For whatever reason, maybe, maybe you all know this, my son Isaac just can't stand vegetables. Like, to be honest, as I was thinking about this, like if it's not bread on the supper table, he probably doesn't want to eat it. And it's this battle that we've had for a long time of, I've attempted various strategies, tactical strategies, like just let the kid go hungry, right? Force him to eat it or bribe him, right? That's often the, the most effective. It's like, man, you're not getting your dessert unless you eat this. So if we, if we sit down for supper and Isaac all of a sudden just dives into the vegetables, like I'm going to be super alarmed because that's not what happened. It's not my expectation. We're in, the, we're, in a, we're in a series, we kicked off a series on Philippians last week, and we know, we did some background work, we know Paul's in prison, and uh, we know that he's got this possible death sentence that's hanging over his head, and I don't know about you, but I would expect, my expectation in these circumstances is self-pity, despair, and defeat. If we were honest, most of us would probably, if we found ourselves in Paul's circumstances, would move towards those things. And yet, Paul exudes the, the complete opposite. He's thankful. He begins the, the, the passage that we read that's for today. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. He uses for the first time in this letter to the Philippians the word joy, which will appear 16 times. You might have heard that Philippians is often called the letter of joy because this word just comes up again and again and again. And Paul's confident. So anybody ever, anybody ever kept a gratitude journal? Everybody ever tried this? Yeah, okay. You hear this recommendation, you, need to, you all need to keep a gratitude journal. You hear this recommendation all the time that how, how, how happiness is linked with gratitude, and one of the best things you can do is at the end of the day, or I was reading one study, maybe ideally two or three times a week, 
you sit down and you write down what you're grateful for. And the re recommendation is typically you want to be as specific as possible. So you don't want to just like, I'm just so thankful for my friend. You want to say, I'm thankful that my friend showed up today with soup and bread and I was sick. And man, that, I'm just so grateful for that. And I, at one point, I think it was a year or two ago, I tried this out and I didn't write it down, but at the end of the day, I'd review my day and I'd go through it, and I was surprised at how much there was to be grateful for. But unless you stop yourself, usually, and remember, it's like it never happened. There's so many things in our days that it's like they never happened. Memory and gratitude are linked together. Often we're grateful for that which we remember. And Paul says in this, in this passage, and whenever you all come to my mind, I just stop and think about you, and, and what happens is I, I just feel the joy swelling up in me. I feel the gratitude. Why does Paul feel this way? Because he remembers. He remembers, as I said last week, it's probably been maybe 10 years since this church in Philippi was founded. He remembers this partnership from the first day until now in the gospel. This word for partnership in Greek is koinonia. If you only know, like, Two Greek words, usually it's agape and koinonia. Often we know koinonia. And it's typically translated fellowship. It's a, it's a fine translation that often makes sense. Problem with the word fellowship, like so much of our language, it kind of gets that Christianese language. Like, so what's fellowship? Well, we got fellowship halls. What happens in fellowship halls? Well, we kind of do some small talk and drink some coffee and eat some donuts. And don't get me wrong, I miss the donuts the COVID shut down. I mean, that was a loss for the congregation. Um, but I think the NIV gets it right here with koinonia, partnership. I remember our partnership. This word koinonia means to have something in common, to share something. And, and it's interesting, I, I learned this week, it's drawn from the business world. So a koinonia was like this business partnership uh, where people would voluntarily invest resources and support on this agreed-upon mission or objective. And Paul is saying, man, when I think about y'all, I think about how you partnered with me in making this, uh, in this venture of making the gospel known. You were, you were like this angel investor. Like, you came in early. You came, when everyone else thought I was crazy, when nobody else wanted to offer support, you guys were there. You were an angel investor. You took a chance on me early on. And not just early, I remember how time and time again you were there for me. You supported me. Now, even when things looked pretty dark in this mission, you were there. And now, Paul, he has this probably very specific memory of Epaphroditus showing up. Imagine, I talked to, gave a little background on prison to you last week. Imagine, you know, he needs someone to support him, to give him food. Maybe Paul hadn't eaten much lately, not provided by the prison. And there Epaphroditus shows up. And that's a specific memory. I remember when Epaphroditus showed up, and I couldn't believe it. That you, he almost died. I could tell he was in bad shape. Because he took this perilous journey just to get to me to support me. You see what Paul's saying? He's not saying like, man, I remember, remember that time we were in the, the church basement having coffee, and wasn't that just lovely? Wasn't that fellowship just wonderful and the food delicious and my heart filled with joy? No, Paul's saying, I remember when you stuck with me through thick and thin. From the first day until now. 
And when I think about that, man, my heart just swells with joy. When I think about how you invested in the partnership of the gospel, when I think about the risk you took, when I think about the sacrifices you made in these very practical and tangible ways, my heart swells with joy. I want you to think about a couple things here. Think about in a time in your life when you're going through some real challenge. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be the loss of a job. That could be an injury or when you're in the hospital. And I'm guessing, because I know Midway, it's a, it's a very loving place. I'm guessing you got lots of words of support or condolences or whatever was appropriate with, in words that time. And that is very important. It is awesome to, 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 to feel that and experience that from people. So don't, I'm not downplaying that. But think about years later. What do you remember? You had a tough time. What do you remember? I think, at least for myself, you tend to remember the really tangible, practical things. Like someone showed up at your house with a meal. And you were like, oh, I am so grateful for this meal. Or someone, man, you couldn't get your car going, and somebody who works on cars showed up and helped you get your car going. You needed some money. Somebody helped you out financially. Maybe someone just, just went over to your house and sat with you. Maybe they didn't say a word. Maybe they just sat in silence with you because that's what you needed. Paul doesn't remember just that the Philippians believed in the same gospel. He, he, they put their money where their mouth was. They joined in in very practical and tangible ways in this gospel partnership. It's why it's important that we gather together and that we live in community. We can't just do this out in the internet. It's hard to do practical and tangible things for each other on the internet. We need to have our lives immersed together where we can do this for each other. But I want you to also think about what are you partnering in and for? Okay, what are you putting your what are you investing your energy in and who are you investing that energy in with? Because because maybe we don't say this, maybe you don't feel this way, but this is sometimes the impression I get um, in the North American church, is that the really serious partnerships are the ones that are happening outside of church. The serious partnerships are, are in the business world, or in the boardrooms, or maybe in our schools, maybe in our extracurricular activities. Oftentimes today, I think that's where the most serious partnerships happen in our societies, in extracurricular activities. Are you fellowshipping with people and partnering with people that believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, who, who want to invest themselves in practical, tangible ways in embodying this good news of Jesus Christ? Uh, as you know, I was on sabbatical this summer, and I was in a, in a place it's about as close to paradise on earth as I can find. Maybe not for you, but for me. So a perfect day in Colorado for me is is to wake up in a tent somewhere out in a beautiful, quiet campground with my family and to go climb a mountain or do a really long hike and get back around noon and go fly fishing in a mountain stream. Maybe if you catch a trout, you can, you can cook it over the fire. Like, that's a perfect day for me. And while I was out in Colorado, this outdoor paradise, I met people who had dropped, you know, they would drop everything and move to Colorado to pursue this dream. There was this, there's just infinite amount of outdoor opportunities in Colorado. And I, and I thought my, to myself a couple times, um, man, if I'd have moved out here in my 20s, I don't know if I'd have left. I think I might have pursued the gospel of Colorado. 
I might have joined, I might have partnered with others who were pursuing the gospel of Colorado and given my life to this gospel. But then also, I said this last week, I got host, we were hosted by brothers and sisters in the faith who were doing some interesting ministry. One of them had a ranch that they would invite people in high-stress jobs to come out and just get a break. And I, I left those places deeply encouraged, joyful, like a deeper joy. I, I love climbing. I love fishing. I love the feeling it brings. But it was like at those places, it was a deeper joy. And I thought to myself, like, I want to invest in that. I want to, that's, that's what's worth giving my life to. This other gospel, it may not be bad things, but it's ultimately hollow. I don't know what your gospel is, but I guarantee you somebody is inviting you to join with them and partnering in the gospel of, you can fill in the blank. It's probably not Colorado for you. That might be the anti-gospel for you to climb mountains. But somebody wants you to partner in a gospel to invest your resources into that. And what I'm saying is that you got to hang around with people who are as invested in the gospel of Jesus Christ as you are. You want to partner together because they're going to rub off on you. Okay? Their passions are going to rub off on you. If I'm around people who are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's, an, it's inevitably going to rub off on me. If I hang out with people who are passionate about the gospel of Colorado, it's going to rub off on me. And it's going to kind of take my life in different directions. That's what I want you to think about. What, what gospel are you partnering with? And who are you partnering with to advance that gospel? Okay, so Paul's praying, right? We know he's praying. He's got this gratitude. He's got joy. He's praying for the church in Philippi. But what I love about this passage is that Paul tells us specifically what he's praying for. So oftentimes we'll say to somebody, and it's not bad, but somebody will tell us what's going on in their lives. I'm going to pray for you. And let's be honest, like some of you, when you say that, like you're going home and you are going to do some serious praying for that person. I, we, I'm so thankful for those people. Some of you have been like me at times where you either forget or you're like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I can't lie, so I need to pray. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to check that box and move on, okay? Am I the only one that's been guilty of this? <laughs> Good, all right. But occasionally I'll get like an email from someone, uh, an unsolicited email, and they'll say, hey, I'm praying for you. And often they'll say a specific thing, like, I'm praying for you for this. Uh, someone from the congregation, sometimes a fellow minister, sometimes just a friend, I'm praying for you. And they tell me specifically the content of their prayer. I always find that so meaningful. This isn't some kind of perfunctory prayer they're doing. This is something, man, they're serious about this prayer. And it makes me think, I want to do that more. Because to have someone interceding on your behalf is really powerful. You may not feel that when you're the one doing the praying, you may not feel that you get a need in your life and all of a sudden people start praying for you and interceding to God on your behalf. Man, that is powerful in so many ways. And what I love about this is that we get to hear how Paul is interceding for them. He's going before God in prayer and he's asking for something. This is what he's asking for. It's, it's a profound prayer. It doesn't seem maybe at, like at first, but this is a prayer... For, for all of us, for our congregation, for myself. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm going to pray. Your love, it just grows and grows and grows until it's just spilling out. It just can't be contained. 
Anyone ever been in a situation where they're having some, this, I'm not thinking about Midway, just here, but I've been in situations where there's been conflict, maybe in a congregation, and somebody will say, we just need to love each other, right? And it's hard to argue with that. You're like, no, I don't, I think that's, no. you can't really argue with that. And yet, at least my experience, I haven't found that, like, super helpful, okay, right? I, don't, I haven't noticed that, like, a lot changes after that person says that. And somebody's going to maybe tell me a story about something that is different. But that's been my experience. But, but we need more, specific, often, uh, more specific guidance than just love each other. And this is what I like about this prayer. Paul gives some very specific guidance. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Good. But he doesn't stop there. In knowledge and insight. Paul is as asking that this love grow into something. Knowledge and insight. Like an intelligent and perceptive love. See, we tend to associate uh, love with like heart, emotion in our culture, knowledge, like that's intellect and facts, and it's like, do these things kind of connect? Well, kind of, but we don't often see the connection. But in Paul, these things are absolutely connected. If you watch, so Columbiana just started their football season, so I get a loudspeaker, and Isaac and I walk down to watch a little bit of this, so, so football's kind of on my mind. But you think about like the coach on the sideline, and oftentimes you'll see them going like this, right? Have you seen this? I mean, it doesn't have to be football. And often you'll see the mouth think, right? So use your head. Physical, football is a physical sport. If you don't have some amount of physical ability and athleticism, I don't care how much you try, you're probably not going to do very well on the football field. Right? Let's be honest. But you can be super strong, you can be the best athlete on that field. If you don't think, you can actually cause problems for your team. You can do a, a false start. You can get a late hit. You can actually do damage to your team and its goals. And Paul's saying, hey, use your head. Love, but use your head. Back in 1 Corinthians, probably a, the, one of the most famous chapters in all the New Testament, Paul's great chapter on love, he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, you can have perfect perception you can fathom all mysteries. You can know all the facts. You can have all the knowledge. If you don't have love, it's worthless. I, I know that. I know that when I think about that. You know, you can have perfect doctrine. You can have all your beliefs in order. You can know your Bible backwards and forwards. You don't have love? Paul's like, man, that's, that's, that's worthless. But here's, here's an interesting addition. Love without knowledge is also a problem. You can love someone sincerely and genuinely and not use your head and actually create problems. And I know this as a parent. I love my kids. I'm guessing, I'm not worried about you parents out there not loving your kids, okay? I don't think it's super hard to love your kids. I think it's super hard to love your kids wisely. That's hard. That's humbling. When do I say yes to the request? When do I say no? We say no. When is the most loving thing that I can do is to try to protect them from the world for a little longer? And when is that actually a disservice to them? When do they need some tough love? And when am I just being tough to their detriment? That's hard. That's hard to know what to do, how to love them wisely. I'm going to need knowledge 
that comes from experience, but also hopefully comes from other people who are farther along than I am, who have been there and can, and can help us know how to love wisely. This word, uh, Paul says, depth of insight, it means something like having the ability to, to, to know the right action in the, in, the right situ- in the situation. So in other words, okay, here's a situation. How do I love this person, this specific person in this specific situation? Because I may genuinely love you. I may try to express that love to you, and it doesn't work. It doesn't compute to you. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not communicated to you. I've been married for a while now, and I can tell you I love my wife. My wife is wonderful. But I can also tell you that I'm still learning to love my wife. I'm still learning to how to love my wife. How she receives love is often different than how I receive and feel love. Just a, a little example, like yesterday. Did Rafi give this example? You don't know what the example is, so okay. At Letonia, I was like, I don't think I'm going to... No, it's not bad. I, this is just me, but like, I'm kind of neurotic about order. Like, I love things to be in order. Like, if, you, if, and, and if I come home and like our bedroom is in perfect order, I'm like, I feel so loved. I feel so loved right now. <laughs> I can, I can, my mind is at peace and everything. Like, if I go and I like get our house all in order and Christiana comes back home, I'm like, She's going to be like, good, all right, good, thank you for doing that. Like, that's not how she receives love. She, she likes an orderly house, too. She likes a clean house just like us. I think she'd rather, much rather me just, like, stop what I'm doing and sit down and focus on her, okay? And I like that, too, but that's often how she receives love. So I can love my wife and not love her very wisely. And here's my, here's my prayer for, for us at Midway that we, our love grow more and more, that it abound more and more, and that we do, we have perception and knowledge. How do we love people well? How do we love each other in this congregation, in our neighborhoods and in our places of work and in our communities? How do we figure out how they receive that love? But Paul, he keeps going, all right? There's so much to this, but he keeps going. He wants the love to grow more and more in knowledge and insight. And he says, so that you may be able to discern what is best. So later on in this letter, in chapter 3, Paul's going to bring up these, he's going to make this very sharply worded warning to the church about what he calls the mutilators of the flesh. It sounds like we're pretty dark, right? The mutilators of the flesh. And what he's probably referring to is Jewish Christians who were telling the Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised. It's not clear that this is happening in uh, the church of Philippi, but in Galatians we see this, this, is, this is happening, and Paul has to address it. So Paul is probably worried about these Jewish Christians who are saying you have to be circumcised, that that teaching is going to come into the church in Philippi. And Paul wants to warn them, when that false teaching comes, if that comes, you need to think. If you don't think, there's a good chance you're going to get tripped up. There's a good chance that this could even shipwreck your faith. This could lead you into a bad place. Chrysostom was, a, was an early church father, and he, he, he did a sermon on this passage in Philippians, and he, he notes how Paul encourages the believers to use reason and judgment so they're not beguiled by false teaching. See, false teaching doesn't always look like false teaching. In fact, oftentimes, false teaching comes under the pretense of love. Okay? 
Just because you put love on a teaching, though, does not mean that that aligns with the truth of the gospel. And this is really hard, right? This is why, I think this is probably why Paul specifically prays this prayer and why I think we need this prayer for today because I think oftentimes we are genuinely motivated by love. Sometimes not, and that is a problem. But we are genuinely motivated as followers of Jesus by love. We genuinely want to do what is loving in our own congregation and our interactions for others. And yet we can deviate from the truth of the gospel. And that deviation from the gospel can lead us into some dangerous places. It can shipwreck our faith. I think a few years ago I might have said, well, that's a little hyperbolic. You can kind of see as we move away from some of the core teachings of Christianity, it tends to take us to places where it's not long before some people say, abandon the whole thing of faith. I think Paul is right. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. It's not just because they got some false teaching. But I think Paul is right. We need to be careful. We need to think. But I also want you to notice that Paul begins this with, I want your love to flow more, overflow more and more and more. Because it's going to be a real problem if we don't start with an overabundance of love. Like, we might be able to stick to the truth of the gospel, what we think is the truth of the gospel, and we can come across as cold and judgmental. And we know, if you, if you, if you read the gospels, you know Jesus, these are like the people he's harshest on. They have good orthodox beliefs, they've got good doctrine, and they're far away from the kingdom. And Jesus is perpetually frustrated with these people who have this correct teaching and yet do not have love. We need both. We need to start with love, but we've got to let that love grow and grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that we can do the hard work of discerning, is this a false teaching or is this not? I'm going to make one final point. As I said in, in the beginning, Paul is thankful, he's joyful, he's confident, and he's in prison. And, you know, Paul could be slightly mad. Like, he could be insane. Like, there's people that are joyful and confident and thankful that have no reason to be joyful and confident and thankful. And you're like, yeah, you're, you're not all there. I don't think Paul's crazy. I think he's confident. I think Paul, he says, I think he's confident that this good work that's begun with the, this partnership in the gospel with the church in Philippi, I, I think he's confident that's going to that's gonna come to a completion. That God's going to finish that work. And, and, and he looks to the end. He looks a couple times in this passage. You see Paul say, the day of Christ Jesus, or the day of Christ. And this, this term has its origin in the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear it as the day of the Lord. It looks, in Paul's use, he substitutes Christ for Lord. And he's looking at the second coming of Jesus, when they would stand before Jesus. And in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is often kind of dark and gloomy and wrathful and Paul's not saying, he's not looking ahead to this day with alarm. He's sober about it, but he's not alarmed because he's confident that what the work that God has begun with the Philippians, it's going to come to completion. Paul, Paul he looks ahead and he's confident that there's an end point. See, as Christians, we believe that, that this story has an end, that history is moving somewhere. This is, this is what sets us apart from other faiths and other things. We believe there's an end point. And Paul, he so lives into that end point that he's so confident that God is a finisher that it informs the rest of his life right now. So I try to 
I try to do work around my house. I have a house that's built in 1850 in Columbiana. I would love to think that I could do all the work on it. But every project I start, I have so little confidence that I can finish it. Like even when I'm ripping out carpet, I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna, am I gonna be able to do this well? Um, every time I start a job, you know, a lot of them I get done, but I'm never confident. So for bigger projects, I'll hire someone to come in and do the remodeling. And usually what happens is the, the person who's got the experience and skills, they'll come into the house, and I'll, we'll kind of explain what we're hoping to do with this, you know, this bathroom, for example, and they'll look around and they'll start naming, well, this is gonna be challenging. We've got, we've got this wall right here, we've got this plumbing right here, and this is gonna be a challenging. Like at this point, I'm like, yeah, well, we need to abandon the project. But that's not what they say, right? They're like, okay, yeah, all right. They get some ideas and they get a plan. When they finally come around, they, do, they start doing the demo work. And it seems like every time they do the demo work, it just reveals more problems. Like, okay, now we got this problem that I didn't even know we had. And I'm like, well, all right, this is, we lose confidence here. But the person never loses confidence. If they're an experienced contractor, they're looking at the problems, but they haven't lost confidence. They see the obstacles ahead of them, but they know they got the skills and the experience to finish the job. They're finishers. And, and think about that. If that's a contractor, if I, if I have that much confidence in, in certain contractors that I've worked, how much more confidence should I have in God? the creator of all this. Like, is he going to complete what he started? Yes. God is a finisher. God does not start a project and then not finish it. And so sitting in prison, Paul can reflect on this. He's not exactly, he knows there's obstacles, but he's got an end point. He knows this is going to get done. On one hand, from one perspective, things look like a mess. Right? He's in prison, He's about to go on trial. There's people, his own fellow believers that are stirring up all these problems. But he takes the long perspective. He knows where this story's going. It's moving to the day of Christ. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to get there. I don't even think Paul knows exactly what his role is going to be. Later on, not too long, he'll start thinking, am I going to be martyred or am I going to go on serving the Lord in this life? And I think by the end he says, yeah, I'm going to go on serving. But he's not sure. What he's sure about is where the story ends. I heard preachers say, you know, oftentimes we're given advice like you need to live in the present, right? Another advice on how to be happy. You've got to live in the present yeah, because we're, we're not good at living in the present. And usually what someone means is we're worrying about this afternoon, we're worrying about tomorrow, we're worrying about next week, we're worrying about retirement, we're worrying, you know, we're always worrying about the future. You know, we need, to, we need to live in the present. And he said, I think he's right, the problem's not that we live in the future, it's that we don't live far enough in the future. We, we, we live in the wrong future. It's different when you live in this future. When you work your way backward from the completion, from the day of Christ, that's a different place to live in. And Paul's, Paul's aware there's a gap. There's a gap between now and the day of Christ. In the Christian life, the life of the disciple is one that we're going to need a lot of God's grace and a lot of God's wisdom and knowledge on knowing how to navigate this gap. There's going to be things that happen in this gap that are just not going to make sense. There might be moments where we're like, I don't know how God is going to bring this to completion. But if 
For like Paul, remember Paul's circumstances, we're looking up into the future, we're working our way back, and we're remembering God finishes what God starts. Let's pray. God, thank you for this prayer of Paul's to the church in Philippi. Thank you that all these years this prayer comes down to us, Lord. It just seems to speak so well into the challenges of our own day. We want to love, Lord. We don't always know how to love wisely. I pray, Lord, for myself and everyone in this congregation that you would make our love abound more and more, that that would be the starting place for everything. This midway would be known as a place that just loves and loves and loves till it's overflowing. But that midway would also be known as a place that loves and thinks, uses our head, and seeks wisdom and knowledge from you. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this room who finds themselves in some troubling places in this gap like Paul did. I pray that you would remind them that you are at work and that you finish whatever you start. It's in Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.